0: It's week 38 of 2018, and this week on TechNado, we have an update on a story we did last week about copyright things in the EU, also have another person affected by mage cart, and then we get to some IT horror stories. That's all coming up on TechNATO, starting right now. Hello and welcome to Technado. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and we have a fun one for you today. And partly it's going to be really fun because we have Don Pezet here, who is usually here, so it's I, not
1: really different. I brighten up the day, don't I? You really do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: it's, it's bright out today as well, and it's uh, probably that's probably why. So, um, yeah, we've got some, some cool stuff today. We're going to talk about some news, then we also have some IT horror stories that we're going to jump to as well. But... Let's go ahead and get right to the news today and uh, and we'll get to the horror stories in a little bit then. So we got the first one up here. There it is. Uh, our first story, uh, it's actually a little bit of a uh, callback to last week. So last week we talked about some new regula- regulations that were coming uh, in the EU that uh, were moving through Parliament, I guess uh, you'd say. They weren't finalized yet, but uh, it, it had to do with copyright issues and uh, takedown notices and things like that and how that process might change for sites like YouTube um, in the future. So uh, this was a, uh, a story that I saw, and it's the Electronic Found or Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org, and they have uh, their takedown story uh, Hall of Shame here. Uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, the person was actually um, uh, had their uh, performance of Bach, who died 300 years ago, taken down. And it, it, this is this the kind of thing that happens because of? Uh, This is computers that do this initially, right? They scan the music.
1: And, and, you know, it it is actually two sides where this is automated that causes the problem. But basically, Sony and a lot of the other big movie studios and music studios, uh, they have algorithms that run that scan everything that gets put onto YouTube to look for copyright violations, right? They're trying to match it up against their own stuff. Well, they use those same algorithms to run against their own library, to generate the signatures that are then compared against the stuff on YouTube and Vimeo and all the other sites. Well, a lot of times they'll have content that they don't exactly own the exclusive rights to, but their algorithm scoops it up, they get a signature for it, and then they just run it against the database. And so what happened here is a guy had recorded himself playing Bach. Uh, Does it actually say what song? Um, Uh, Or whatever, hmm. I, I guess.
0: Any no, I'm not sure, but it was, yeah, he, he recorded his own, you know, hands playing on the piano as well, so you can see it's not, you know, with with images or something where you couldn't tell who the performer was. In this case, it was actually him. Yep, uh, but
1: unfortunately, uh, Sony had, you know, released. Bach music at, at various points in uh, the Sony's illustrious career. Uh, you know, They've probably done it thousands of times, and that is all out there in the public domain now because Bach's been dead a long, long time. Uh, but the thing is, when it comes to copyrights and DMCA takedowns, it's guilty until proven innocent, right? So anybody can file a DMCA takedown claiming they own the rights to video or audio and get your stuff taken down. And then it's up to you to prove that you had the right to put it there in the first place. And this has been abused time and time again. That's why the EFF has their site set up for this, where if there's something up there that you just don't like, you can submit a DMCA on it, and they'll take it down. And then whoever put it up in the first place has to come back and prove they have ownership. Well— I'm sure nine times out of 10, they just don't bother and move on. and You just successfully got something yeah. removed. It's like a-
0: and, and I don't think they read the reports half the time. I bet their first inclination is just to yeah, hit no, because this guy responded with, uh, you know, you can, you can uh, appeal the decision basically. So he responded saying, this is my own performance of Bach who died 300 years ago. I own all the rights. And Sony rejected that response. So to me, anyone that, that was actually reading that would say, oh, yeah, you're right, let me, uh, let me pull back th- our objection, but I'm thinking uh, a bot probably uh, reads the results and just blanketly uh, rejects them all because it wasn't until it was posted online and people started talking about it that Sony actually backtracked and said, you're right, we don't own BoxWorks.
1: Yeah. And, you know, this kind of stuff's been going on for a while with not just YouTube and Vimeo, but other websites as well. Uh, Anybody who puts content online, you can get a DMCA takedown notice if you're not careful. Uh, Or even if you are careful, you're like this guy. He wasn't doing anything wrong, and he got one. Uh, It is an unfortunate circumstance, and a lot of what's going on in the EU is just going to make this worse in coming time. Uh, Because now we're going to start seeing this stuff happen at the moment of uploading. So while you're trying to upload the content, it's going to get blocked right away. Uh, people like Google are going to be responsible for applying these filters, as opposed to Sony doing it themselves or third parties doing it. Uh, so it, it's going to be an interesting time to see where that goes, but definitely something to keep an eye out for, especially if you're somebody who uploads media online.
0: Yeah, and it's it's no longer going to be going to be a takedown. It's going to be a you never got it up in the first place because uh, it was rejected at that time. So. It'll be interesting to check out, but definitely if you want to read some more of these stories that are pretty good, um, check out EFF.org, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They've got a whole uh, takedown hall of shame um, to read up on. All right. Well, we have uh, – this is actually kind of another continuing story from uh, from last week and, and previous weeks uh, because this this all kind of still relates back to um, what originally happened with Ticketmaster. and It's happened to a lot of other sites now. Uh, this over on TechCrunch.com. Hackers stole credit, uh, credit cards in Newegg Data Breach. Newegg. Obviously very popular uh, electronic site and th- the latest to uh, fall victim to this, the same thing we've seen time and time again.
1: Yeah, and the sad part here is it's the the same organization that did the attack and they use the same technique as the other ones that basically they are uh, injecting code into the checkout page on these sites. And with Newegg, for a period, a little bit longer than a month, there was this malicious code in their checkout webpage so that when you went to checkout, your credit card information was captured. So it's effectively a... a a virtual skimmer, like, you know, the credit card skimmers at gas stations. It was like that, except in the virtual shopping cart. And it all ties back to these companies where they have plug-ins and other things on the checkout page that weakens their security. Now, I made a comment this morning, uh, I was talking with a colleague of mine, uh, and I said, I really wish they would release more details of these attacks because how are companies supposed to look and see, like, could, could I be affected? Now we've got Ticketmaster, British Airways, and Newegg, there's probably tons of, of small companies out there that're compromised the same way. Have no idea, right? Um, and somebody pointed out to me that if I would uh, read the article a little better, uh, they give a link in here to RiskIQ, and RiskIQ is one of the companies that was reporting on this breach. And they actually did. If we hit this link here for according to the research, we can go to RiskIQ's website, and they actually provide a technical breakdown on how the breach occurred and what that code oh, looks yeah. like. And that's really useful. If you have an online shopping cart, you can compare your page with some of the results that you're seeing here to get an idea if you've potentially been compromised like this, that uh, you know they're intercepting that data. But RiskIQ did a great job of breaking that down. Uh, if you want to read it, go to www.riskiq.com slash blog slash labs slash Magecart Newegg. Uh, Magecart is the code name assigned to the hacking group that's pulling this stuff off. Uh, and you can read all about it, and they give a really good breakdown of it. Uh, I was pleased to see that because I, I, I didn't get that with Ticketmaster or, or with British Airways. They just told us how the attack worked. Risk IQ did a really good job of writing that up.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because I was expecting that, oh, maybe we're just hearing about these people that had a breach at the same time as Ticketmaster, and they're just finding out now. But this, this talks about this took place until September 18th. So, uh, you know, it, it's kind of inexcusable at this point that if you saw what happened with these other sites, you didn't go back and look at your own uh, site and your own shopping cart and say, do I have anything on this checkout page that's third party that I need to take a look at or – need to take off the site, probably.
1: Well, you know, we see this. It was kind of the premise behind our DDoS webinar that we did a, a few weeks ago. A lot of companies get attacked, and then they hide all the details. Either mm-hmm. they don't want the bad PR, or they're engaged in litigation, or something like that, and they don't share the details. And if we don't hear the details, how are we supposed to protect ourselves from it? So that was, that was why we did that DDoS webinar, was to kind of share that with everybody. Here, here's what it looks like. Here's how you protect. Here's how you spot that. And you get that insider view. Well, here with what they were doing, uh, what RiskIQ did, is they share that with you. Like, here's what you need to look for. You need to look for an onload function. If you see that, anytime the page loads, that function runs, and it might look legitimate, but in this case, it's doing a serialized array to gather the data that's being pumped in there and send that off. Uh, That's not normal code that should be on your checkout page. You can spot that, and now you know, well, now you know you've been compromised. You do need to figure out how somebody was able to modify your web page. So they've found some vulnerability in either a, a, a theme or web application or something else on your site to be able to get in to change the page. But at least you can spot that. You should be monitoring for modifications to your website anyway so that if any code changes on your website, you're immediately notified, uh, and, and that helps to prevent these, these types of uh, – uh, well, it doesn't help to prevent them, but it helps to make sure that you're aware as soon as possible. Uh, basically, with Newegg – their shopping cart was modified, and they didn't spot it for five weeks. Like, it, it, within minutes, you should have a notification that a, a change happened to your code base. Uh, that did not happen here.
0: Yeah, I definitely respect the companies that get out in front of it at the beginning, put the whole story out there. Here's what happened. Here's what we're doing about it. Um, you know, it, it you know puts everything out, so it's not going to be trickling out over several news cycles. And, uh, and the transparency, I think, is definitely respected. Uh, all right. Speaking of... Uh, well, not respected. Yeah, <laughs> Let's go over to this article on ABC News. Uh, abcnews.go.com. uh Amazon investigating allegations workers were paid for confidential data, deleting bad reviews. And uh, this was originally uh, some reporting that was done by the Wall Street Journal. They, of course, have a paywall on their site, and we do not pay. So uh, <laughs> we came over here to ABC. And, uh, yeah, this is, this is pretty bad for the, the world's largest—are they the largest retailer now? Are they bigger than— Walmart and I, yeah, I, for the I, world's largest online retailer, definitely the largest Say online that. retailer. Yeah. We can certainly
1: give them that. Uh, you know, this was surprising because it shows like, as an organization like Amazon, they have some of the highest caliber security professionals on staff of any company in the world because they're an online only company. Their IT security team it's, it's really like a, a rock star list of people in that space. So it shows, though, that no matter how much security you put in place, inside threats are typically the most damaging. And in this case, it looks like employees who had legitimate need to access the data—you know, people that work with that data—were turning around and accepting bribes either to remove bad reviews, which you know that didn't really bother me all that much. I just kind of assumed that stuff happened anyway. I, I assume most of the reviews on Amazon are fake, so <laughs> that, that really didn't impact me. But then to leak. Customer data, right? So you can have like the most secure database servers in the world, but when the people who have a legitimate access to those databases are taking the data and turning around and selling it online, that's much harder to prevent. So this is more of a data exfiltration type attack, uh, you know, kind of like Edward Snowden, mm-hmm. where he was a military contractor, he had secret clearance, he had legitimate need to access that data, he just shuttled it off with them and then uh, chucked it online. So That's really what Amazon is up against. Now, I did see numerous times where they're saying Amazon is investigating allegations. So they're not coming out and saying, yes, this happened yet. Uh, So more details, I imagine, will emerge. But it will certainly be a black eye for them. Um, Not really any different than a company having credit card skimmers. If you think about it, Target had malware on their point of sale systems capturing credit card data for months millions of people lost their their, their uh, credit card data. or uh, They didn't lose it. They inadvertently shared it with uh, unauthorized third parties. And if you look at Target today, they're doing just fine, yeah. right? So you know, a breach like this I don't think is really going to affect them, but I hope it does open people's eyes to say, look, we do need to pay attention to
0: insider threats, that you could always have an internal employee that leaks the data. Yeah, and there's a lot of companies out there that, that rely on sales from Amazon. And so – I think depending on what comes out of this, there is a lot of litigation that's going to happen of um, people that can claim unfair practices or uh, look for lost sales maybe that, that they didn't get.
1: You know, you mentioned the other companies. Uh, I, I did see where uh, they weren't selling this data like just on the dark web to hackers or whatever. Uh, they were selling this data to people who were reselling on Amazon's website to try and give them a competitive advantage. So all of this was about people getting a competitive advantage removing bad reviews so that a product sells, understanding customers they can market to to pitch them towards that product. Like, that's really what it was all about. So of all the people to leak to, at least it was people that just want to make money and not necessarily do damage. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where it all goes.
0: Yeah, and I'm imagining that the people that did uh, make the decision to buy that data will probably uh, be removed for violating terms of service as well. So uh, we'll see. We Some, should hope. A little shake up. Yeah, we, we should hope If not, that. that sends a whole different message. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we encourage your entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> says, says the practice is more common in China where brokers or Amazon employees offered private information in exchange between uh, $80,000 and $2,000. I feel like you could get a little bit more.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on what your uh, living wage is, where you're at. That's a fair point. Maybe that's a lot of money. That's
0: a fair point. (laughs) All right. Well, I teased a little bit uh, in the introduction here that we had some horror stories to share. And uh, so it was IT Professionals Day was this week. What was it? Last Tuesday? I don't know. Uh, I was, just here Wednesday. Was, was here in September. Yeah. And so, uh, in honor of that, what we decided to do uh, here at IT Pro TV was to uh, invite um, our members to share their IT horror stories with us. And we decided we'd kind of pick, pick the best ones and give them some swag and actually turn them into videos. So, um, we, we had a ton of great submissions and I wanted to share just a, uh, you know, a, a few of the, the ones that were the best, but I want to show you also an example of one of the videos we created. We haven't done the one for the winner yet. Cause we just picked this, um, yesterday actually, but, uh, we actually made one of your horror, horror stories, Don into a video here. And, and yours was, uh, when you were working like a help desk, essentially. Yes. Yep. So, uh, so my, my story, and we, we tried to come up with fun
1: ones that were, uh, as, as an IT worker, I think we've all experienced the, the crazy end user, uh, where mine was that we, we had a guy call the help desk, and he said that all his icons were gone. Now, at this company, we had a terminal server farm. Uh, it, it used to be Citrix. We'd moved over to Microsoft Terminal Services. Uh, it was a terminal server farm, so people would get a, a, a remote desktop Uh, that they would pull up, and that's where they worked. All their applications were there. And he had all these icons on his desktop, and he says icons were gone. Now, I supported the terminal server farm. There were 12 servers in there, if I remember. Let's not give it away. Oh. we're gonna show the video. Oh, we're gonna show the video. Yeah. Oh, I was gonna tell the story. Yeah. No, but you've set it up. I've set perfectly. it up. All, I've All right. So you at just the right we'll spot. stop right there and uh, <laughs> and yeah and and see what this guy does because his interpretation of things being gone turned out to be yeah. pretty, gone pretty unique.
0: Is, apparently, gone is subjective. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go ahead and take a look at that video now
1: worked at a, a data center and we had terminal servers. We had a, a lot of Windows terminal servers and, and some, uh, some Citrix systems in place where people would basically establish a remote desktop to our, our center. And we got a call from a guy who said all of his icons were gone. And the help desk team tried to help him and finally got escalated up to my team where we, we ran the terminal servers. And I pulled up this guy's desktop and all the icons were there. I could see every one. And so I, I was talking to him on the phone and I said, now, can you, you tell me about your problem? Try, trying to be the good IT worker, trying to listen to the problem. And and he explained to me, all of my icons are gone. And I said, okay, well, can you tell me what kind of icons would you normally see? And he started naming. He was one of those people that would have a thousand icons on the desktop. And I could see every one that he was telling me about. And I didn't understand And so finally I said, are we looking at the same screen here? Because I, I see the icons. And he said, he said, Yeah, I see those. But mine were all on the right side of the screen. And I said, what? What happened was we had had a server fail on the back end and we had done a restore. And no big deal, right? All the data was backed up, restored, it's all in place. But apparently as part of the Windows backup process, or it might have been semantic backup exec, or one of the backup agents that was involved, it didn't record where an icon was on the desktop, just that the icon exists. when we did the restore, it put everything back and sorted it by name. Well, to this guy, that was the equivalent of all the icons being gone. The fact that they were in a different order was just more than he could wrap his mind around. And it took me, it took me a solid 15 minutes just to figure out what exactly this guy saw as the problem. And it really, really highlighted the different levels of IT experience that people have out there in the field.
0: That was definitely a facepalm uh, kind of <laughs> moment there, but uh, uh, we had some some other good ones here. So let me let me go ahead and read off a few of these, and uh, we'll get your take on them, Don. So you haven't heard these yet, correct? I haven't. I have no idea who the winner is, oh, and fantastic. I've only heard a handful. All right. All right, and we're we're just gonna do first names here as well, because you know, I'm gonna protect the uh, the innocent or or the guilty. <laughs> Let's see. So uh, Scott's our first one. So uh, he says a user opened up an infected email with uh, Nimda. Uh, it hit across the entire enterprise. The impact of the business was just about catastrophic. Uh, it was for a state agency, and we faced lawsuits from the loss of service, as well as IT staff being volunteered to work 18-hour days until every single workstation across the state had been patched. We had to disable all switch ports and keep the virus from spreading. I got to work 12 days straight with a CD-ROM pack sitting at every workstation. He supported the eastern half of the state at that time. So wow. I can't imagine the monotony of just... Put the CD in. Machine, <laughs> after, machine after machine. Do you remember Nimda? I do. Yeah. I don't remember. yeah. Yeah. What was that one? I don't really remember
1: that one. Uh, it was just another uh, virus that spread, uh, similar to Code Red or okay. the uh, there was the I Love You virus, Anna Kornikova, You know those. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nimda was another one. It was very widespread because it was a zero day and it, it populated really fast. Um, I was actually on Paul Security Weekly and doing their little hacker trivia contest, and they asked me how Nimda got its name. And I had never realized this, but it's just the word admin spelled backwards. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's what Nimda is. So. How long ago was this one? Because if he's doing CDs, that... Uh, it it was a while ago. Um, Ten years probably, okay, right? right? 2007, 2008, that sounds about right. Yeah. All right.
0: Uh, our yeah. next one Oh yeah, you look that up. Well, we bring the next one here. Next one is from Steve. Uh, he says a user calls in to change their password. No problem. Reset. They reset it uh, completely, and they gave the password to the new user. So he signs in, and it prompts him to change it. Everything's good. User enters the incorrect password twice. So okay, this shouldn't be an issue. Let me uh, explain it to you. So he says, "All right, your password is." And he tells him the password. Password's incorrect again. So he resets it. Issues the new one. And uh, so, after many times, he hears the user sound out the password. Y O U R. So he was actually typing in your password is. Nice. And uh, kindly interrupted the user and started laughing. So, uh, I think we've all dealt with stuff like that. I've before. had I've had similar experiences where you tell
1: somebody their password has a space in it, and they type S P A C E. Uh, yeah, that's they, some people, especially if they're new to computers or they don't know they take things a little too literally sometimes b as in
0: boy so you you type the whole b (laughs) as in boy yeah uh all right next one here um from william one evening i was sitting at my desk pretty normal shift and then all of a sudden darkness power went out and our building uh has all the servers their ups did not function properly and affected the entire company not a fun day at all and that is why how how do you test a ups because when you need it you need it so is there a process for doing that yeah you just yank the power plug out of the back so you just do that like on a Sunday night or something sure. on, a low, on a downtime?
1: Yeah. You know, you usually set some kind of a, a routine or a maintenance schedule for it. Uh, I've seen places where they, they cut the circuit breaker to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can actually simulate on a large scale. But on a small scale, you can usually just unplug it. Some UPSs actually have where you can flip them to battery power right from the unit. And most of them will actually do cycle tests on their own. Uh, you know, once a day or once a week, they'll shift over just briefly. So you'll get a red light or something if, yeah. if a test failed. Yep, and then you get notified. And, and even the cheap UPSs do that today. Depending on how old that story is, though, they didn't always do that. And you could certainly have one that, that didn't work. I usually hear that story more around like a generator, where the generator doesn't trigger like it's supposed to, and the UPSs run out of battery, and they find out. you know, If you have a generator, a lot of people will get it installed, and it's working perfect on day one. And you don't realize that you've got to run a generator like once a week, once every other week at least. Otherwise, the fuel starts to collect, yeah. and and then it won't it won't crank. So, uh, you know, generators have to be maintained and and uh, you know, taken care
0: of. Yeah, you can't just wait for that storm for that uh, to, yeah. to uh, start. But up. But that
1: would stink to think that you're protected, and then yeah. all of a sudden you lose power and you're just out. And you're done.
0: Yeah. All right. This next one's from Joshua. Uh, I was 18 years old, just graduated uh, from my IT networking school. Uh, I get to my first duty station and my boss is trying to implement VSS between two 6500 series Cisco switches. She wants me to help her. Line by line, I went through Cisco CLI looking at the configs. I spent two days, 16 hours doing this. Finally, the day came and we were going to implement it. So, Task one, notify management. We're going to take down the internal network for two hours. Task two, shut down the old switches. Wrong. I didn't save the old config and there were no backups. First week on the job, network had been failed. Needless to say, every time I touch a new network, the first thing I implement is the network backups. Yeah, and you know the the sad part is on. I've worked
1: on a number of switches. HP is like this. If you work on HP ProCurve switches, they don't save by default. And so you get in there and you make config changes, you make modifications, and everything's running fine. And then you cut power to them, and when they come back up, they've lost all their changes. Right? They're not saved uh, Juniper, Cisco routers, you've got to remember to save the running config. Otherwise you'll lose it when you reboot. And if you don't have a backup and you wipe it, you know, that if you're moving to new switches, that's one thing. But if you're having to roll back because of a problem, you've lost your safety net at that point. And that you get that sinking feeling like, (laughs) Like, Oh, no, I (laughs) I just ruined something. Uh, and I, I, uh, I always try and learn from other people's mistakes. Right. And, And, but it it happens sometimes, especially when you're new on the job.
0: Well, that's what, what's great about these stories, too, is that each of them kind of has a lesson that you can take away from it. I know they're funny, but at the same time, you go, "Oh yeah, well, you should have done this or this." I mean, you know, you can't you can't predict the power is going to go out, but you mm-hmm. can predict whether or not your UPS works and, sure. and your generator works. So, just all these kinds of things. All right, next up here from Doug, uh, it was July 24th, my birthday. So now, if you know a Doug, it was a dark else, and stormy 24th. night. Yeah, and he's really setting the scene here. <laughs> uh, I think the year was 2002. Uh, I was a relatively new support analyst at the IT service desk for a home improvement company that morning. a Vendor plugged their laptop into the company network, which is scary in and of itself to have a vendor do that, uh, only to unleash the SQL slammer virus into uh-huh. our network. The whole data center was brought to its knees, and the network was shut down. That meant that we lost our remote access tools that we used to help stores. We spent that part of uh, that day and part of the next telling the stores that they had to call us in to uh, they had to call in to help. Um, for help on what to do, and we had to give them our password so they could log into the Unix systems with our credentials to correct the issues that they were having. That was scary. Probably a hundred people had my password till I was able to change it the next day. But it was the only way that we could think of to help the stores complete the sales that they were trying to process. So you've got the stores relying back on the corporate network to yeah. process the sales. What do you so, do? Yeah. So I, there's two takes on this. You know, one when you have a network
1: outage, you, you're, you're having a disaster, right? And you have to go into uh, business resumption, disaster recovery mode. Business resumption, you just need to get the business resumed, get it working, get it where you can do what you need to do. Uh, and you do whatever it takes. And in his case, sharing out his password, that, that was the solution. So I, I certainly don't blame him for that. It's not what you want. But uh, it does show that they didn't have a plan in place. They didn't say, like, if this ever happened— what would occur and if they had planned for it, they could have said, you know what we'll have a separate credential that's assigned to each store manager or something so that they can get in and take care of this and avoid it I, I bet there was a big lessons learned out of that one yeah
0: and uh, and you know they came up
1: with a procedure but that that does show the importance of doing disaster recovery
0: planning yeah I bet you'll like this one this is an AWS related one so this is from uh, Lewis it says Amazon Web Services had to er, had to take the hardware that they were supporting uh, one of their instances down for maintenance, and they said, quote, anything stored on ethereal storage will not be retained, or something to that effect. And uh, I was told to reboot our instance in AWS so that we would stop getting the error message and email. At this time, I was, and still am in many ways, an AWS noob, so I right-clicked the EC2 instance and clicked Reboot. Waiting, waiting, and then once it came back on, I went uh, into the uh, slash uh, opt directory, and everything was gone. It effectively deleted the cluster master deployment server for a Splunk environment and later realized they had no backup of the system. They spent two weeks rebuilding and configuring the instance of Splunk uh, to bring it back to working order.
1: You know, that's a challenge with cloud deployments if you don't understand, like, um, and, and AWS doesn't do this anymore, but they used to default to using this ephemeral storage uh, is what it's called. An ephemeral storage is tied to the hardware you're on. So if your instance moves to a different set of hardware, it gets wiped out. Anytime you stop your instance, that gets wiped out. If you just reboot, though, it's normally fine unless the hardware underneath is failing and Amazon takes that time to move you to another piece of hardware. So there's really one mistake here, and that is they stored critical data on ephemeral storage, which is not what it's designed for. So today, when you spin up an EC2 instance, it defaults to the elastic block-backed storage, the EBS, and uh, and so that that's not a problem. Your data does get retained. But in the early days of the cloud, and this is, did you say a date?
0: This is probably uh, a while ago.
1: didn't say a date, no. Yeah, because now, like, the ephemeral storage doesn't even show up by default. You have to purposefully mount it. Like, you have to intentionally do it. Um, but uh, in the original days of AWS, it wasn't like that. It, it did show up by default, and a lot of people did use it. So if you deployed and didn't realize that gets wiped out, you could lose some serious data. So I, I feel for them. Uh, you know, that's a, a mistake yeah. that's easy enough to
0: make. But it does show
1: backups could have saved the day.
0: And by the way, I said ethereal storage because that's what is written here, so I'm assuming that was a spell check thing. You said it's called what, ephemeral? Ephemeral. All and, right, we'll go with that one. Yeah, it's all the same. I knew what he meant. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, let's see. Uh, this next one I like. Um, Casey says, while upgrading to a new load balancer, I unplugged the old one and plugged the new one in, but the load balancer was sandwiched between two cluster servers twice its size. So when the new load balancer didn't, make, uh, didn't take the new configs, there wasn't enough space for my hand to to get the network unplugged. So I had to pull out the entire load balancer to get the cable unplugged. I'm just thinking of, like, the back of our server room, and you've got (laughs) some servers that are, you know, two feet longer than the one before it, and you've got to get your hand in there. You've got to have a plan before you just... I'm just going to swap this out. It'll take five minutes.
1: And, you know, I I love how, like... um HPE servers, like the Proliant servers or the Dell PowerEdge servers, they have these beautiful cable management arms and sliding rails, so you can slide them all the way out and get right at their cables, yeah. and it's so easy. And then you get like a Cisco switch or uh, you know a, a Juniper firewall, and it's a freaking nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> you have to you have to try and unscrew it, and it, it only goes six inches deep instead of being three foot deep like a server would be. It, it is really hard, um,
0: especially those RJ45. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, we have those those video routers here based on what we do, and we actually have that tool to be able to get those cables out because, I mean, it, it's a 40 by 40 switch, uh, router, and if you need to get the cable in the middle, it's just not going to happen, because you have to spin and remove it. Yeah. Are there tools for, for other There aren't. Like uh, no. So
1: RJ45 connectors have that little tab on top, oh, yeah. and so you got to press the tab down to pull it out, and you just can't do that with the tool. So there are different types of connectors that I've seen, like little paddle connectors and stuff that are designed to, to fix that, but they're not very common. They're they're pretty rare. So normally you're gonna see people with regular connectors that it's hard to get at. So you've got to plan for that. If you're using those types of devices, you have to leave gaps in your rack. Plenty of people don't. Yeah. And you end up with I mean, it it's painful if you try and just like jam a long stick in there to
0: <laughs> hit the tab. It takes yeah, forever. That's probably not the best practice. <laughs> so I'm not sure. All right. I love this story. This one's from Margaret. This is definitely one of like the top three that it came down to. Uh, they say, all right, help desk call about a network laser printer issue. So they asked the user to open the printer and they were walking through the procedure to clean the high voltage wire in the bottom of the printer. She was getting a, a long black streak on her printouts. So I asked her to power off the printer and first and locate the tweezers uh, with felt mounted on the inside of the printer Then she screamed at the top of her lungs and dropped the phone, and then silence. So I think we're all assuming (laughs) we forgot that unplug part of this because we're calling this the high-voltage cable. So I thought she had electrocuted herself upon touching that high-voltage wire. Nope. uh, No immediate answers, and silence. Then hysterical laughter. She found the problem. A small gecko lizard had crawled inside Uh the printer to get warm and was resting on that wire. She removed it and offered to send it to me. Uh, and I envisioned receiving a dead lizard in the mail, and I politely declined and told her, no no worries. And she said, not a problem. I'll fax him to you. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm picturing her trying to put the lizard through the fax machine, and then she put the little dead guy on her copy machine, printed the silhouette, and then put that picture through her fax machine. I kept that gecko silhouette as a picture at my workstation for many, many years, and it makes me laugh. So nice. Yes, yeah. That's frightening.
1: The, uh, the corona wire inside of a printer, uh, it carries a pretty strong charge because this has to put the... I can never remember if it's a negative or a positive charge it puts where the ink would normally go on the paper to draw the toner over to it. Uh, It can shock the hell out of you if you're not careful. And it usually disables the moment you open a printer. So that's why I was wondering, like, even if she left it plugged in, when you open the printer, that wire gets disabled. It might still be really hot, but it shouldn't shock you but seeing an animal in a piece of equipment, that'll shock you every time. (laughs) Definitely.
0: (laughs) All right, uh, I'll try to paraphrase this one, because it's a really good story, but it's really long, too. So uh, this is from Tim. Uh, First day on a new job, June of 2017. Uh, Started normal, um, but he gets to the office, and he sees that on the login book that his boss had signed in at 11 o'clock the previous night, which is definitely unusual. So uh, he was let in and soon discovered that uh, there had been a heavy rain the night before, and the server room uh, had leaked. uh, And... It was covering the MDF in water, which is not medium density fiberboard, that is. Uh, main distribution for fiber. Main distribution for fiber. Covered that in water as well as the server rack and everything was down. Uh, so got a quick update. Uh, they, they met with uh, the facilities department and started drying the floors and things. Uh, and they were using standard hair dryers uh, with the cases open to go, at, go ahead and try to dry out everything they could. Uh, after a full day of drying and cleaning the equipment, uh, they began to reassemble the network and test power for each device. Much to their surprise, all the servers came up except for one of the dual power supplies in their file print server, which is pretty darn impressive. Um, We keep moving on to the core switches and MDF switches, hoping for the same luck. It wasn't to be. One of uh, the three Cisco switches would not power on, but two of the three is not bad considering the amount of water they poured out of them. Uh, Once we had the switches in the rack, we connected the key personnel of the network uh, and were able to get stuff going. So it was basically a week that they were uh, in and out of, of connection. But... It brings up an interesting thing because we had recently an employee who, I don't know how it happened, but he spilled <laughs> a, an entire bottle of water on his laptop. Um, there's a lot of stories about what happened. Just don't believe what you hear out there. But the problem he had, according to uh, what Nate, our, our IT guy here says, and, and what you've told me is when he tried to power it back on to see if it would turn on. So the, the thing is it can get wet but just not with power, right? Yeah,
1: you know, in most most electronics, water won't hurt them. I mean, if there's other stuff in the water, it will, But but normal water won't really hurt electronics unless electricity is present. So you could get it wet, and as long as it dries completely, it'll power back on. The problem is today, so many electronics, like laptops, have batteries in them that are not removable, right? So take my MacBook, the battery is in there, it's hardwired. So no matter what I do, it's got power applied to it. It used to be that if I got water on a laptop, I could yank the battery out real quick and know the mm-hmm. power was completely removed, and then you let it dry. And when I say let it dry, I mean, it might take a couple of days to to dry out. Uh, in Florida, it's really nice. You can stick it on the dashboard of your car, and within a day, <laughs> yeah. it'll be fine. Except for the humidity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, on your car, usually the sun will bake it. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard of people putting them in the oven, which is not good for, well, much. Yes. But uh, uh, you know, whatever you can do to get all the moisture out of there. Microwave, right? Uh, yeah, microwave oh, is microwave. definitely a great idea. Quick, did you see that April Fool's joke about how the you iPhone can charge had your yeah. iPhone? Yeah, do not do that. <laughs> Don't it do does that. not work. Yeah. Um, the problem though are, are like cell phones though, where, where the battery is just in there. You can't. If you hold the power button for ten seconds, it'll power off, but it's never actually powered off, yeah. and and so it dies. The damage is
0: done by then anyway. Yeah. In ten seconds,
1: network gear is actually built to be a lot more resilient because uh, it can push a lot more power. So they usually build circuits in there. You might blow a fuse or something, and then they cut off. But if you power it back on while it's still wet, you're in trouble. The other thing, though, is even if it does dry, once it's gotten wet, a lot of times there's a film that's on circuit boards, and that film gets removed by the water. You're definitely going to have a shorter lifetime for that piece of equipment. So I would never rely upon hardware that had gotten wet. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be straight-up water. It could just be humidity in the air. Excess humidity in the air can cause more damage in a lot of cases than actual water, because water comes and goes, but the humidity
0: floats around a while uh, and can really get in there. All right, so we're we're down to the top three now. These are the the top three stories uh, that we we chose from here. So this one's from Tina. Uh, As a student technician, I once got a call to service a staff member's laptop. Imagine walking into a room and getting smacked in the nose with the smell of wet sock, BO, and dead animal. I held my breath. The laptop in question would turn on, but the fan wasn't running, which probably was causing it to overheat. No problem. We'll take a look inside and send it to Dell if it's a faulty fan. I bring the laptop back into the tech office to disassemble. What's terrible is I could still smell the wet sock BO dead animal even after leaving their office. Removing the back panel filled our technician's area with a toxic smell and revealed a motherboard caked with so much cat hair that it had clogged the heat sink and fan. We sent the laptop to Dell, and they sent us a new one under warranty. They probably threw the thing away when yeah. it came in because that's disgusting. So that, that was one we definitely were like, I, we kind of want to create a video with, with, the, with the cat hair.
1: I'm surprised they covered it under warranty because it seems like that would go under improper use and care, right?
0: Yeah, well, maybe they removed all the cat hair and put it back on and then sent it to yeah, Dell. It was convincing but, enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, next one uh, from Hector, this is great. Uh, I had a remote user come to my office because we were doing major changes. We're going from one domain to another and he wanted to make sure everything went smooth and wanted me to check for other issues. While the computer was booting up, I see a bunch of lines on the screen. and was like, what was that? He mentioned that he didn't know and they won't go away. I'm like, okay, well you might have a faulty screen. So when the computer booted and was on the Windows login screen on Windows 7, I see a lot of scribble and it looks like signatures. So he looked at me and said, yeah, I signed the form on my computer, but it won't go away. I think it's a software issue, and I don't know how to get rid of it. I touched the screen, and I feel the texture on the screen, and sure enough, he had signed the screen with a pen multiple times. I tried to keep my composure and try not to laugh or make him feel bad and just told him, looks like you wrote on your screen with a pen. Uh, he looks at me a little embarrassed, to which I just grabbed the disinfectant wipe and cleaned all the ink off the screen, and after he left, played many scenarios in my head like he probably signed the screen multiple times but uh, because the digital form kept telling him that there was no signature. That's funny. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even if it was a touchscreen, you know, pulling out a pen and writing <laughs> on your screen, that, how well, can anyone think that that's,
1: that's right? I, I mean, again, if you're, not, if you're not well-versed in computers, maybe, uh, I don't know. We had this problem when we moved from mainframes to regular computers that you'd ask somebody to reboot, and they were so trained in the dummy terminal way— uh, where you would just turn the monitor off and turn it on again. Mm. You'd tell somebody to reboot the computer, and they would turn the monitor off <laughs> and turn it back on, and they'd say, yep, I rebooted, yeah. but you know the computer didn't reboot. So people people just have different experience levels, I guess.
0: I guess so. All right, our last one, and this is our winner. It's actually from Ellen Adams, and um, what's funny is these, these were all submitted on Facebook, so I know it, it says Ellen Adams, but it was Ellen's husband who used his wife's account. Uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but that's what I've got here. So um, when we make the video of this, we'll, we'll get the It's a really right name. good story when they have to hide their identity behind <laughs> yeah, their wife. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It says, I swear, as unbelievable as this sounds, this is a firsthand true story. I had driven 100-plus miles to repair a printer, As I was reassembling the printer, I could not find a little but crucial plastic part. So I'm looking all around the table I was working on, under the table, and an adult, it specifies an adult lady, walked by. She asked me what I was looking for, and I told her, oh, it's a little tiny piece of plastic. She proceeded to spit it out of her mouth into her hand and asked me if this was it. It was when I called the company to tell them I could not complete the repair because the user had eaten the part. They thought I was being a smart, Alec. Uh, no, that was the truth, and I swear it's the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Wow, there, there's what? so many things to unpack with that story of why yeah, yeah. someone would pick up a plastic piece and say, "Well, that looks delicious," but huh. uh, and then she had damaged it enough that he couldn't install I, it, or he just so. said no. It's yeah, that, been... that's my hope that he. Uh, uh-uh, I'm not. I'm not doing that. But yeah, hundred mile round trip. Uh, to go and, and deal with, with that is just simply yeah. disgusting, but it's going to make for a great you know, video.
1: It and, and, will. And, and that really shows how times have changed, right? Like printers now are just commodity items. I would never drive 100 oh, yeah. miles to change a printer. In fact, if I go to a printer and it's got a problem other than loading paper,
0: I'm probably just going to buy a new one. Yeah, <laughs> you say, is that ink? No, and just replace the printer. It, yeah. comes, it comes with new ink anyway. It's cheaper than buying new ink. It's,
1: isn't that sad? It like is. It, it is cheaper yeah. to buy a new printer. Uh, all right, maybe maybe not some of the nice laser <laughs> network ones and all that. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the old days of servicing rollers and all that—you only do that on the really expensive um, uh, commercial grade printers. Yeah, yeah, most printers—it's it's not like it used to be.
0: Well, those were some fantastic, disgusting, and horrible stories, Uh, and we thank all of the users that submitted them. And uh, that's actually going to do it for us this week on the TechNet. We do have a couple things to let you know about. Uh, Let's first of all go ahead and bring up the webinars page here. Uh, We've got... Um, some webinars coming up in october we don't actually have those um listed on here yet but we just had this one today the top five devops blunders and i know you're saying well that doesn't help me because i missed it but uh in the next couple of days here probably monday and tuesday of the week that you're uh seeing this uh we're going to go ahead and get that recording up so if you missed it you can go back and and watch it and that was a pretty cool one who who was the target audience of this webinar is it is it People, me. It was so so, okay.
1: It was. <laughs> it was <laughs> perfect.
0: Uh, the, the target audience were developers who were being thrown
1: into the DevOps role. Okay. Uh, but even sysadmins can benefit from watching it, especially if you're being thrown into the DevOps world as well. Uh, There's a lot of cloud security in there, so it was it was a good webinar. Just five mistakes that we make over and over and over again. Uh, Justin did the show with me, and he's a developer, and it was funny because at the end of the at the end of the webinar, he told me, he said, Don. I've made every one of those mistakes. (laughs) And and so it's just, you know, five really common things, chance to learn from other people's mistakes instead of
0: doing them yourself. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of the theme for today is here's a bunch of horrible stories and here's how they can help you not do these horrible things yourself. Though I don't know how you stop someone from eating a piece of your printer. Yeah, That's not really something that uh, I just keep it all together. Um, and we also want to let you know about uh, a special offer. Uh, check it out over at go.itpro.tv slash Technado. Uh, you can get 30% off your IT Pro TV subscription uh, for the lifetime of your subscription. So as long as you continue re- to renew, you get that great deal. Um, and if you have a team and want to request a demo, it's a great place to do that as well. We've got great pricing uh, for teams and some special features that, that teams can take advantage of to collaborate uh, with each other. So go ahead and check that out over at that website. And, Don, that's, that's all we got. You got anything else? That's about it. Uh, we are working up our webinars for October,
1: which is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, right? Yes, is that, it is. So, uh, so definitely look for that as we start to create some of that content get it out there. Check out ITPro.TV. You'll see it all there.
0: And there's talk of a dark web webinar.
1: There is. We're not allowed to talk about it. First rule oh. of dark web
0: is uh, oh. nobody talks about see, dark web. I didn't. I haven't seen the webinar yet. I see? had no idea that that was a thing. Uh, that's that's going to make it very difficult to promote <laughs> this webinar uh, when we iron out all the details. But thank you everybody for watching, and uh, we will see you next week.